Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. When you find yourself in the middle of a killing field and the freaking Chozer of the Slain tells you to do something, you do it. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we have another special guest, Jake Dirksen, the author of the upcoming, soon-to-be-released-on-Kickstarter, Heroes of Tara. So Jake, welcome to Undercommon Taste. Hello. Yes, welcome. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. So you want to take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do? Yeah. So as you said, uh, I'm Jake Dirksen. I'm from uh, the Cincinnati Dayton area of Ohio. Professionally speaking, I'm an archaeologist, generally just digging around the Midwestern area with pre-colonial and colonial era sites. I've been uh, gaming for about, I'd say well over 10 years now, actually. Me and my uh, home group buddies actually just recently did a tally and we figured out that we've been gaming for about a dozen years now. And that's been as both a player and a DM. Dungeons and Dragons has always been my home, but you know, I like to say I have a pretty broad field of experience. But yeah, that's me to start. Awesome. That sounds great. Do you want to tell us about the game and what one can expect or like what is Heroes of Tara? Well, Heroes of Tara is basically a full adaptation of 5th edition D&D, like a complete from the ground up rebuilding of it. We take the uh, core basic mechanics as permitted by the open gaming license that is so generously put out by Wizards. And from there, we put in our own classes, our own races that for the sake of the setting are now referred to as tribes, new background, new feats, and just a whole boatload of special extra new mechanics that really just help bring this setting to life. And this setting is a uh, prehistoric Ireland. It is based in our Ireland, but not exactly as we know it. There is a lot of genuinely researched historical and archaeological foundations there to kind of help bring the world to life. But in every way we can, we follow the folklore and mythology first and foremost. And Irish mythology might not be something that a lot of people are familiar with. We all know our, you know, Greek gods, our Norse gods, Zeus and Odin, and their famous sons, Thor and Hercules. But not a lot of people have ever really talked about Lu or his heroic son, Cúchulainn. And I can tell you, these characters get up to some wild stuff. Irish mythology is some of the most colorful, outrageous, and literally otherworldly pre-modern fiction, I suppose, belief system mythology that I have ever encountered. And I've just been wanting to bring it to life here on the gaming table and share it with everybody who might have an interest. So which sources are you pulling from in your research? I'm familiar with some of them, like the Irish annals, but what sort of things are you pulling from? Primary sources have been basically the bread and butter of this entire project. And when I say primary sources, I mean, we are going back to the original myths themselves. And the book itself actually takes a little bit of a preface or a preamble to kind of, in an academic sense, really, lay out our sources and where they come from. So basically, the uh, whole body of Irish mythology is organized into four different sections, what are referred to as cycles. You have the mythological cycle, the Ulster cycle, the Fenian cycle, and the cycles of kings, which is also referred to as the historical cycle. And these are all in chronological order, beginning with a mythological cycle that is a lot more about the gods. The gods are first and foremost. It's about the earliest supposed histories of Ireland, the dramas of the gods and the giant chaotic demons called the Fomorians. Their dramas and conflicts are first and foremost. And 
as we go on through these cycles with the Ulster and Fenian cycles into the historical or kingly cycles, it's this progression through the history of Ireland following the deeds of heroes with monsters and the whole nine yards until eventually we get into the early medieval ages. And that's kind of one of the intriguing things is this seamless transition through all of them. And this supposedly takes place, these original mythologies, across you know, millennia. But what Heroes of Tara has done is it's kind of brought all of these sources together and coalesced them into one coherent RPG setting that uh, gamers can actually tangibly engage with as compellingly as any other D&D setting that might be out there. That sounds really awesome. You took some lore and some folklore that not a lot of people know about, and it sounds like you really did your homework on this case, then kind of set everything in, and then kind of made it accessible, so that's really cool. So, I mean, even if you take classic D&D, or even things like Arthurian legend, you know, I mean, even there you encompass quite a large chunk of space. But again, like you said, it's all kind of accessible, so even with your tabletop D&D, you've got stuff from like early roman from the republic before you know the roman empire you've got stuff from the roman empire you've got greek gods roman gods and then yet you still got a very medieval setting which would be you know quite further advanced several centuries ahead right so it sounds like you've laid a lot of these same bricks down for your foundation that's actually really exciting to hear yeah i should assure everybody that throughout the design of this game it has been kept first and foremost in our mind that this is not intended to be a museum piece. This is not something where you take the players through on just a little velvet rope guided tour of the literary history. No, the players are intended to dive in head first and uh, interact with this stuff any way that they like. But the book really does provide a toolbox for them to basically uh, learn about this setting inside and out if they feel like reading the sections that are provided. But that's been the primary motivation is really, yeah, making this new setting that a lot of people might know enough about to be curious of, but they might not know a lot. We're trying to make it accessible for everybody and just share a little piece of our own world's history and culture in an immersive and interactive way. I absolutely love that. Like, I've always been a huge proponent that D&D, tabletop gamings, and games in general can be, like, one of the strongest learning tools. And so if you want to teach people a bit of flavor history or some lore or storytelling or things like that, this seems like a great way to do that. And even with this book, the way you're laying things out, this seems like this would be another great tool for exposing, you know, a different culture or different things that people might not be terribly familiar with. So, well done. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I can only hope that it is so warmly received. So I I do have to ask, why did you choose Irish mythology, Irish lore as the basis for this project? Personal interest, first and foremost. I gotta say, I don't have much claim to Irish heritage myself. I'm just kind of your typical American with a typical American heritage from several different sources. But I would say that it all began uh, when I was a kid. My parents gifted me these two music albums. One was by a uh, traditional band called the uh, Chieftains. And the other was by a folk-inspired punk rock band called The Pogues, both of these folks from Ireland. Oh, I gotta love The Pogues. Oh, yeah. Shane McGowan is just amazing. And both of these bands, they just blew my mind. And I don't know exactly what it was, just, you know, the way the wires are laid out in my brain, something just really clicked. And I was hooked ever since then. I guess just kind of by coincidence, maybe, as I grew older, I happened to, you know, also get interested in exploring history and folklore of different cultures and just kind of learning about different locations and people around the world. And the music was always just kind of this guiding star, you know, that would just lead me back to Ireland again and again. And I just, over time, uh, gained a particular familiarity with this location when I was 
16 or 18, my parents had kind of caught on that I had a bit of an enthusiasm about this culture and the history and the music and everything about it. So they actually were so kind and got us a uh, family vacation over there to Ireland for one of my uh, birthdays, my 16th or 18th, I forget which. And that was a life-defining experience that I still remember today. I would love to get back out to Ireland. So it's just always been this kind of affinity that I've had for whatever reason. And as I would learn more about the history, I gradually became aware of the mythology. And as I mentioned, I had this thought of like, you know, man, why does nobody talk about this mythology? It's like, yeah, we all know Thor and Hercules and all that. But man, this Cahollan guy, he's a badass. You know, we should all be getting comic books and movies about this guy too. And uh, I just start looking into it and I start wondering like, man, why does nobody talk about Celtic Irish mythology the way that they, you know, talk about these other pantheons. And I kind of eventually came to the conclusion that it was because something about it just kind of defies quantification. And in the terms of modern storytelling, it kind of defies commodification in a lot of ways. It's just like the passing of time is absolutely irrelevant. The motivations and temperaments of characters can change from story to story. There is really no logic and motivation. It's all just kind of stream of consciousness. And I know that this might not sound exceptional to anybody who knows their world mythology. I mean, a lot of mythologies around the world are remarkable for how surreal and otherworldly they are. That's oftentimes what makes them into mythology. And I don't mean to come off as exceptionalist or anything, but there genuinely does seem to be at least something that sets Celtic mythology apart from its European peers, you might say, like uh, the Norse and Greek myths. Their gods, they can do wild things, they can shapeshift, etc., but they still are rather earthly or relatable in their motivations in many ways. You know, they uh, are oftentimes visualized quite easily as human beings. Their conflicts often bring them down to earth to carry them out among mortals or with mortals as their pawns. It's always kind of on a mortal playing field or perspective in a way. But when it comes to Celtic mythology, the Tua de Danann are the pantheon of Irish mythology. And later Christian writings did somewhat bring them down to earth. And that's the primary sources that we have for a lot of these early mythologies is through uh, monastic clerics who wrote it all down in like the fifth and sixth centuries. And of course, their interpretations and their agendas, they wanted to kind of assimilate and sanitize these old pagan beliefs so the gods and deities and beliefs they come down to us you know seeming pretty human and made relatable but when you read between the lines or sometimes not so much between the lines sometimes the mask just cracks entirely and you see the old pagan madness that is at work in these stories where Nothing seems real. The other world is everywhere and adventure abounds. So it really is just entirely a motivation of wanting to share the source material with anyone who might pick this book up. And obviously, I've started with Irish mythology because, as I've explained, it's just where my temperament lies. But if this is successful, if it takes off, I would like to obviously do a few more books with Heroes of Tara, maybe get a classic trilogy of a monster manual and a dungeon master's guide out there. But I would also love to eventually perhaps move on to other cultures, other mythologies and parts of the world that they all deserve this same treatment, honestly. Yeah, I mean, the way you've described this, that sounds great, especially from an archaeological standpoint. And the way you're talking about how the Celtic peoples saw 
and envision their gods. That was one of the things that I learned in school that kind of really stood out. We just recently recorded our episode on Hades. And so talking about the Sumerian version of how they viewed their god in the afterlife where everything was very grim because the flooding of the Tigris and the Euphrates tended to be more erratic. Yes. Where if you look at like the Egyptian gods, they were more serene and a bit more relatable and reliable because the Nile flooded regularly. And so again, taking that information and you go back to where, you know, classical Ireland would be the Celts, the Gauls, and the weather there can change at a drop of a hat. The sea is notoriously very finicky. The weathers, the frosts can be very finicky. And so that kind of gives you that mythical ever present that the gods are always there. And because the environment can change so quickly, so therefore that has to be a direct influence of the gods. So therefore the gods' temperaments must be very similar as well. And this is purely speculation. I have no evidence to actually support this statement, but... I would almost go so far as to say that the lack of distribution, if you will, of the Celtic mythos is a direct result of the English. Because the English did do a lot from about 1100 on. Mm -hmm. They did a lot of trying to subjugate the Irish to try and make Ireland English. Because they claimed it as their territory and the Irish were having none of it. The Gaelic language was outlawed. Yeah. And it's still something, was it 1996 whenever they signed the peace accord in Northern Ireland? Yeah. Was it the Belfast Accords? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, I think you have that right. And I think that was in 1996. So, you know, you're talking almost a thousand years of the English trying to subjugate the Irish physically, culturally, economically. And that had to have at least a role in the reason why these myths aren't as widespread as some of the other mythologies. I would absolutely agree with that. Because with our other mythologies, let's say starting with the Olympian gods, they really had their heyday and were held up since the days of the Renaissance, several centuries earlier than when, say, Cromwell was getting up to his business in Ireland. They had this, you know, classical revivalism where the Olympian gods were held up. And then later on, say in the Victorian era, there was a bit of that Germanic romanticism. You had Wagner, you had the anglo kind of doing a revivalism of uh, Siegfriedian Scandinavian mythologies. So that's where we get our familiarity with the Norse today, one might say. Right. And you actually have really a second renaissance or second revival of the Greek and Roman when you have the Age of Enlightenment. Yes. Which is what a lot of the founding fathers tried to base their theories and philosophies for the United States on. So again, a lot of that Roman and Greek influence kind of came over with them as well. Absolutely, yeah. Our cultures are totally immersed in those pantheons. Yeah, and no, there was a concerted effort to just kind of wipe out Celtic culture in many ways. Even preceding the rise of England as a nation with the Romans, they had uh, concerted efforts to deconstruct the Druidic religious system to completely tear it down because the Druids were proving to be a bit of a uh, a bit of an organizing force against them, a bit of a unifying influence among the disparate Celtic tribes that could have actually amounted to a genuine coordinated resistance against Roman expansion. And so you see in records all of this almost like Roman propaganda about druidic practices and how vicious and bloodthirsty they were. And I don't want to swing totally in the opposite direction and paint the Celts with this kind of noble savage brush and just say that, oh no, that's all Roman propaganda because we do have genuine archaeological evidence that the druids and Celts at large did 
have some pretty gnarly beliefs and practices. Uh, we do have evidence of sacrifice, but all the same, you have this interesting interrogation of the classical sources of the Romans and Greeks that write about the Celts. There is really no point in history where we have a reliable and clear picture of the Celtic culture and worldview as a whole. There has been very few times that pre-Christian Celtic society was kind of allowed to uh, express itself to the world. Obviously, after Christianization of Ireland, they became a prevalent champion of a literary presence on the world stage, thanks to the very same monastic clerics who wrote down these uh, mythological stories we have. So, you know, they deserve credit for that. And it also should be said that uh, as far as Christianization's influence goes, Ireland is actually remarkable in the fact that it is one of the very few places that was not converted by the sword. You know, all the famous stories about St. Patrick going about, a lot of the more fantastic stories have him, you know, throwing out and expelling demons and such. But there are also just a lot of like a more hagiographical anecdotes about him having dialogues with the druids or uh, holding a sermon for the people and the people just kind of by their own reasoning or uh, impetus choosing to take on this new belief. Now, I'm not sure how much that is. We as a people, as scholars, are not sure how much that is a genuine indication of how it went down. I mean, obviously, Christian sources are going to write uh, that, you know, everything was, you know, roses and dewdrops and that <laughs> ju just went wonderfully. But of at course. the same time, at the same time, we really don't have a lot of counter evidence that there was like any crusades by the sword against Ireland. Like you have, say, like Charlemagne had crusades against the Saxons, which are well attributed to, and those were absolutely vicious. The Saxons, they did not Christianize easily. And it's very evident that it was not the same situation in Ireland. So it's a very kind of complex, multifaceted topic as to why we find Celtic history and stories in the state they are today. Because there are like at least three different vectors that have been acting forces upon this subject material for millennia. And so... All that is to say that obviously I've been trying to get as much authentic and uh, earnest representation and research into this book as I can. But at the same time, Heroes of Tara should not be taken as any sort of like objective scholarship. I've kind of had to pick a narrative and go with it, you know, at points where like the mythology conflicts with the history. I always err on the side of the mythology. And that's there reasonable. Are, yeah. And like there are mythologies and histories that are kind of cherry picked from across a span of about four to five centuries that I've all just kind of crammed together into this one timeless setting. So there are a lot of individual little things to learn here and here as Atara, but as a whole, I mean, as I've just tried to illustrate, it's an incredibly vast and complex and mind-boggling topic that I should warn anybody against expecting a single cohesive vision on it. Here's Atara here offers a single vision for the sake of having a game world that players can actually engage with, but we should always be aware of the actual stories we're interacting with and the state they come to us in, really and how to handle them. Right. Now that we're talking a little bit about the game aspect, let's shift a little bit away from the inspirational mythology for the game and talk a little bit about the game itself. Right. So what sort of mechanical aspects have you included in the game to bring this mythological Ireland to life? Well, yeah, I can just kind of start at the top of the list here, and I'll just give a little working review on the way down. Okay. Uh, so as I kind of gave a little brief rundown a little while ago, we're starting off with a complete rebuild. I've uh, basically taken the stripped down open gaming license rule set 
that is made public to creators such as myself. And from there, I've just basically built up everything as a genuine reflection and simulation of the source material. There is not a piece of this game that did not have any kind of precedent or reasoning born from the source material. So to start, the player races, they are now referred to as tribes because it's just simply more suitable for the setting. Races obviously does come with its own baggage in the uh, gaming community nowadays. So we will admit to simply trying to sidestep that, but Tribes has a broader precedent as well within the source material. A lot of times in the source material, you see this word being used in just kind of a general sense. Tribe was originally a Latin word derived from a tribus, which is just broadly defined as a group of people that claim a point of common origin. And it was actually applied by the Romans and Greeks to the Celtic peoples. There's also a clan system, and that is separate from the tribe system here in the game. And it actually is given a fair amount of attention within the book itself. But uh, I won't diverge into talking about clans at the moment because that's a rabbit hole of its own. So the <laughs> tribes we have are three. We have the Gales, who are representative of the actual people who historically inhabited Ireland around the turn of the millennia. These are the uh, Celtic-speaking peoples known as the Gaels. They had arrived in Ireland about 500 BC, and they feature in all of the mythologies, and they are frequently referred to as Gaels within the mythology, which is, you know, small wonder because it is the later Christianized Gaels who were writing down all these stories. So they were basically, you know, writing about their own culture and ancestors. And because of that, the Gaels are presented as kind of the driving force of Iru at the time. They are a bit of the hegemonic culture within the setting. All of the kingdoms are Gaelic kingdoms because they had recently invaded several centuries before and overthrew the gods, the gods of the Tua de Danan had ruled upon Iru as earthly kings and queens and pretty much had brought about an other world upon earth until the Gales invaded and overthrew them and drove them back past the veil into the other world. And the other world is a planar setting, I should say, that comes with our setting here. And also, I believe I just let slip the word Iru. Iru is actually the in-setting name for ancient Ireland. The setting is Iru. It's basically an old Irish name for Ireland at the time that we're just reviving here. So that's the Gaels. They're passionate, impetuous, and a warlike people, also with a great love for craftsmanship and poetry. And then we have the uh, Firbolg, who are the second tribe. And the Firbolg is a name that you might recognize if you've played 5th edition I believe they were included in Volo's Guide to Monsters. Yes. In 5th uh, yeah. edition Forgotten Realms, they are presented as a giant kin. I believe seven to eight foot tall people of the forest with uh, round pink noses and big floppy ears and uh, blue fur over them. And I like them. They're rather charming. I think Furbolg are a great addition to the Forgotten Realms setting. But those are not actually the Furbolg as we know them from original mythology. Indeed, even from earlier editions of D&D, earlier editions did kind of have them as just like these big burly red-haired giant kin which honestly do get a little boring when you also have hill giants and ogres so i can see why wizards wanted to spice them up but uh in the original mythology and so here in iru the Furbolg, they are an ancient people they are humans they're mortal beings just like the gale but where the gale in iru represent the real world gale that historically were in ireland at the time the Firbolg represent the Bronze Age people that actually would have preceded the Gales in real history. In real history, archaeologically, we know this culture as the Bell Beaker culture. The Bell Beaker is in reference to the uh, shape and form that their pottery took. 
archaeologists are not really a inspired bunch when coming up with names. <laughs> uh, pretty technical, really. But in a mythological sense, the Firbolg are an incredibly rich culture. They are also very frequently referred to in the mythology. They are given oftentimes their own identity by the uh, Gaelic narrative within the mythology. And they're kind of depicted within the mythology as this dwindling people, this ancient people. Their ancestors were the very first mortals to ever settle in Iru, and they had contended with these chaotic forces of an early untamed natural world that had not yet come to accept the plow or the settling influence of mortals. So would these kind of be like the first men in the old uh, like Game of Thrones mythos? Yes, exactly. I, that's an analogy that I love to say, actually, is that the Firbolg are basically the first men to the Gale's Andals. If anybody knows their Song of Ice and Fire, that's a perfect lineup. <laughs> it's almost like George R. R. Martin pulled it from history or something. Right? Almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Children of the Forest. Never heard of that one before. But... Uh, <laughs> But all praise to him, honestly. I don't want that to sound like I was being sarcastic at his expense. Genuinely, I think Martin actually did a lot of justice to it. I believe actually he even, uh, this is a great segue, in reference to when talking about the White Walkers, the Others, he, I believe at one point, famously compared them to the A-She of Irish mythology. And the A-She are indeed the third tribe that we have here in Heroes of Tara. In game terms, they could probably most easily be likened to... They're essentially the equivalent of the elven sort of race that you might find in your basic D&D. They are ethereal, mysterious, rooted in a close association with the other world, this parallel dimension that is entwined with the mortal world. And they are kind of the lesser kinfolk and the servants of the gods who I've been referring to, the Tua de Danan. And under the leadership of the Tua de Danan, the Aishi, at one point, like a millennia before this current time of the setting, had sailed in from the other world on flying ships that rode on thunderclouds. And they invaded Iru and overthrew the Firbolg who had first settled there. And it was an Iru ruled by the Tuatadan and where the Gales then came and overthrew them. And it's in the aftermath of the histories of these three tribes and their conflicts and their overthrows and their attempts to all come from uh, different corners of the earth and make this one island their own home and how they eventually come to cooperate and understand one another and still strive against the chaotic forces of nature in the other world that have never really died down. That's the setting we find ourselves in. I like it. That sounds so, so really interesting and fun. There's a lot of historical and mechanical things in here that you could really kind of grab onto. Oh, so yeah. you mentioned the Aishi. Can we expect any kind of like Phalor in with this? Or are we not going that far with things? Or Oh, no, absolutely. As based and founded in uh, genuine history as this tries to be, this is not a low magic or historically accurate setting. The people of Iru, they might live in just like reed-thatched mud huts. But the challenges they face and the deeds that they undertake are just as colorful and epic and wild as any high fantasy setting that you might get into. You know, I made reference to the other world and everything like that. So things get pretty out there and as out there as you really want them to. And that includes Fey lore. We have all the classic superstitions that you might be familiar with from the actual stories integrated in one way or another. A lot of the creature stat blocks, and believe me, I'm designing quite a few unique special stat blocks to go along with this system, hopefully enough to one day populate a monster manual of its own. 
All of these creatures come equipped with uh, unique and special features that make them into much more than just a bag of hit points to be beat down on in a combat encounter. A lot of social interactions that are founded on these odd and capricious and uh, tricky ways of the Fae. You have monsters that follow their own particular rules and uh, just exist on the threshold between the mortal world and the other world. You have ways for the characters to interact with and navigate that veil themselves very directly. I should say, mechanically speaking, staying on that, I know 5th edition already has a reputation for super-powered characters. A lot of people are sometimes a little dissatisfied with that because they feel it makes it too easy. And I honestly, I hear that. I sometimes feel that way myself. But for what is suitable in terms of bringing this setting to life, when you look at the source material and what some of the heroes in there get up to, like the legendary Finn McCool and Cahollin, they get up to some pretty wild stuff. So players might be surprised by what the character classes are capable of in Heroes of Tara. Enemies will be falling before any of these three classes that we have, like wheat before a scythe. But DMs and players should not be dismayed. This is not just going to be some kind of power trip where we also have thrown in a lot of nice lore and setting to interact with. The mechanics themselves have the lore and the roleplay and the setting just woven straight into them in a way that actually still yields very unique challenges. And then we've also made some rather technical adjustments that I feel do help bring the setting to life in different ways in terms of pacing things out. The biggest difference might be that we have extended the rest lengths for short and long rests from, what was it? One hour for a short rest yeah. and eight hours for a long rest. Yes, that has now been lengthened to eight hours and seven days, respectively. So gone would be the days where a player party can just take a long rest after every single combat encounter and just be fresh as a daisy ready to go. If a player group wants to do that after every combat encounter and here's Atara, then they simply would not be able to get anything done. They have to really kind of stick their necks out there, see how far they get, and really embrace the setting and the challenges of the world in a different way and have a different sort of approach to it. The first combat encounter after just about every single long rest is always going to go well for the player characters. That's going to be a nice, glorious little heroic episode where they can blow off their steam. But then after that, it becomes this matter of attrition and endurance. And players will also find that such little practicalities as healing spells are far more scarce. The game does provide other ways to buff up hit points with temporary hit points and such, but hit dice will be a far more relevant resource. Dark vision, which so many people just take for granted, is far less prevalent. So that's another way that DMs could use this. So Yeah, absolutely. If you're doing some good cultic lore, there should be a good and reasonable fear of the dark. Oh, yes, yes. There are many things that lurk in the dark. So I suppose I'm getting at all this as a preamble to a work up to talking about the classes themselves, if y'all would want to hear about those. Yeah, that sounds great. So we have three classes. Again, just like three tribes, we kind of have this uh, rule of three going on, which really just worked out wonderfully. It's just the way that the game happened to fall into place. But anyone who knows their Celtic mythology will pick up on the resonance of that rule of three, so to speak. But anyways, that's just a neat little aside. The three classes that we have are kind of adhering both to classic archetypes or motifs that we have in the source material of Irish mythology, but then they also adhere to like the three classic archetypes of RPG characters, where you have the heavy combat, you have the skillful stealth, 
and evasion and such. And then you have the wisdom and the magic. And these are embodied in the warrior of the Red Branch, who is a uh, fighter slash barbarian, if we want to liken it back to 5th edition origins. Then we have the Fenid, who might be, uh, you might say, a ranger slash rogue. And we finally have the Feely, who, I mean, they wear a lot of hats depending on the subclass you choose. They can be a bard, a wizard slash druid or a cleric. Speaking of bards and druids, I can get into that in just a second. But when I liken any of these classes back to origins or parallels in 5th edition, players definitely will recognize some likenesses between Heroes of Tara classes and original classes. Warrior of the Red Branch, for example, has the fighter abilities as allowed through the OGL of Second Wind and Action Surge. And they also have a mechanic that is very similar to the Barbarian Rage. And the same goes for Fennet. Fennet has a few little ranger qualities, a few little rogue qualities like cunning action, etc. But all of these classes, beyond that, the core of them, their foundations, have been rebuilt, just like the rest of the game, to be something quite unlike... I would say quite confidently any 5e player has yet seen on the table. If anyone is familiar with the point management systems of the sorcerers and monks, sorcery points and key points, I've taken those concepts and I've applied them to every single one of these classes. The warrior of the red branch has glory points, the fenid has cunning points, and the feely has invocation points. And their class mechanics allow them to really get up to some amazing, just high-end, epic, heroic deeds. But what balances it all out is the point management system that each of these classes comes attached with. And each of them are incentivized into uh, different gameplays and into different roles and styles of gameplay. The Fenid earns cunning points in ways different from how the Warrior of the Red Branch would earn glory points. And beyond, So would these be like RP prompts? In a way, yes. I would say that what we have here is actually a pretty seamless integration of combat gameplay with capturing the mood and essence and roleplay of what these classes are all about. As I said earlier, there is not a piece of game mechanic that made it into this game that is not first based on some kind of precedent or inspiration directly from the source material. So awesome. the Fenid, the Warrior of the Red Branch, the Feely, all these, they have level 1 to level 20 complete uh, level progressions and quite beefy ones, I would say. They got a lot of features. Let's say, for instance, the Fenid. The Fenid, archetypally, in terms of its basic design inspiration and the roleplay and basically like if I was writing down just a brainstorm session on a blank piece of paper, like what do I want the Fenid to embody? What do I want playing the Fenid to evoke in the player? How do I want the Fenid to represent the source material, the mythology? I referred to the stories of Finn McCool. Finn McCool is one of the most famous heroes of Irish mythology. He's the main character of the Fenian cycle. If you'll recall me referring to these four separate cycles of Irish mythology back towards the beginning of our talk, the Fenian cycle is all about Finn McCool. It's the Finn McCool show. And if you uh, needed a good relation, Finn McCool is basically equivalent to the Greek Odysseus. Okay. He's this clever trickster who has an answer for any situation. He's quick on his feet. He has no problems with engaging his enemies with wit just as much as bravery and brawn. And that is basically what the Fenid is all about. The Fenid dances at the fray, at the edge of the fray. He confounds his enemies. And he totally has like the 80s action film name. So, I mean, that's even awesome in its own right. Exactly. Oh, and just a, a glorious head of hair. If you want 80s action movie star, you can't get any better than Finn McCool. 
Like, honestly, this guy should be in a cop buddy show or something. But the same goes for uh, Warrior the Red Branch. Warrior the Red Branch is based entirely off of the archetype provided by the other great hero of Irish mythology, Cúchulainn. And if Finn McCool is like Odysseus, then Cúchulainn is like the Achilles or the Hercules. Just the big bruiser that everybody is afraid to get in front of, basically. And that's the Warrior of the Red Branch. The Warrior of the Red Branch is just all about diving into the thick of it and just scattering your enemies before you and just basking in the glory of it all. And kind of feeling invincible right up until that moment that you realize you have overextended yourself and suddenly you're not invincible anymore. It's really kind of a razor's edge, especially when you bring in these point management systems. You really have to be careful about how you apply your points and how you conserve them or else you might find yourself out in the cold a few miles away from any opportunity for a long rest. So could we ask Alhu what was best in life? Yes. Oh, yeah. And he would tell you. He would tell you. Lamentations and all of it. And as for the Feely, the Feely has no such character within Irish mythology who was the star of their own body of stories that could provide as easy an archetype. But thankfully for the Feely, what we have is a lot more cultural and historical evidence. Because the Feely, Feely is uh, basically an old Irish word that translates directly to poet or seer, actually. It also means seer. Because the Feely were the learned caste of ancient Ireland. They were the educated people, the teachers, the historians, the singers. But there's a belief in Gaelic culture and a way that they approached the concept of knowledge and learning that invested it also with this mystic value. And that's why the Feely are not only these educated people with valuable insight, they are also literal seers and oracles who have this direct relationship with the gods, because it is also knowledge that empowers the gods to be who they are. And uh, the Celtic belief system, knowledge is not just this abstract concept that is born from the mind. It is a universal force that can be perceived and tapped into. And that's kind of the premise of how magic works in this setting, if anyone would be curious about that. But where the Feely and all of these other classes actually really begin to shine, and where Players, I believe, will have the most engagement with customizing and building their characters and balancing them and just having all of these options to get just the character just the way they want them. That will be primarily found in the subclasses. And I feel that's where Heroes of Tara gameplay will shine overall for the player is in the subclasses. In the primary basic 5th edition, subclasses, they're neat. Oftentimes they might be insubstantial. Not so much nowadays. I would actually say that I am one of the people who would make the observation that it seems with each new book published, we kind of have this power bloat going on with all the new subclasses that keep getting added in. They're always more and more fantastic than the last, but there's no problem with that here in Heroes of Tara because they are absolutely fantastic and that's just fine. There's really nobody who is missing out, no subclasses who are being overshadowed by others. Each of them have their own stage to shine on in Heroes of Tara, and each of these three classes has three subclasses that diversify them into amazing different directions. And even then, when we zoom into this kind of fractal element of the class design, we are still encountering and learning new things about the source material, delving further into what it means to be offended, what it means to be a warrior of the Red Branch. I absolutely love that. And like I said, I love how immersive your stories and your mechanics are with the lore and the RP and all that. I think that that actually is going to bring a lot to the table. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how that's going to work out. 
So one of the things that I really noticed about Heroes of Tara when I was reading through the promo material, the playtest pre-release mechanical stuff that you've got out. Right. It has a very old school D&D feel. Do you have any background in the older editions of D&D or is that just incidental and a byproduct of the subject material of Irish mythology? Uh, Yeah, I would actually say that is purely incidental. I'm actually rather interested to hear that. This is the first such observation that I've received along those lines. If anything, regrettably, most of the people who uh, find greater affinity with the old school form of gaming, first edition, second edition, a few of them have been a little vocal about their disappointment that this game is based in fifth edition. So it's very intriguing that you uh, give a bit of the opposite impression there. I will say that I've always had a great curiosity about old school gaming. I do like the idea of tactical dungeon crawl gameplay where you're playing characters that aren't exactly superheroes and, you know, the stakes are on kind of a different level. But, you know, 5th edition with its, you know, fantastic off-the-wall combat and mechanics has its place as well. And just however much, you know, affinity or curiosity I might have with old school ideas, it just happens that 5th edition is just kind of the best enabled to bring Irish setting to life. And I really actually appreciate that you chose to use 5th edition back when 3rd edition and 3.5 were still out. And whenever people started picking that up, there were other games that used that basic framework. The D20 Modern, you know, there's a Star Wars D20 game, which I think was also produced by Wizards of the Coast. Mm -hmm. But there were other games that were built off of that skeleton. And we just haven't really seen that a whole lot with the fifth edition framework yet. Honestly, I cannot say right now without doing any research that I know of any other games that are using the framework that aren't just marketed as being a supplement to Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition. Adventures in Middle Earth. Okay. Yeah, Adventures in Middle Earth is a fantastic one. Unfortunately, they just went out of print last year because the uh, license went over to Fantasy Flight from Cubicle 7, but that'll bring about new things. Fantasy Flight's about to put out a new edition of the One Ring, so Lord of the Rings gaming will live on. Anyways, uh, sorry for the aside, but I would recommend Adventures in Middle Earth for a fantastic 5th edition adaptation. But aside from that, I I think you are right. It's untrodden ground a good bit so far. We're always good for a good suggestion of game or material, which kind of... Leads me back to with your inspiration. So again, very obviously you talked about your source material and stuff. Was there any pop culture type things, books, music, lore, games that kind of flavored or inspired or influenced you as you're creating or your general creative process? Oh, sure. In relating like directly to Heroes of Tara, as far as direct conscious pieces of influence, I would say first and foremost, the novels by one Morgan Llewellyn, who uh, was a writer still active to this day, but the books that were the greatest influence on me were published, I believe, through the 90s up into the early 2000s. Books such as The Lion of Ireland, Finn McCool, Red Branch. Uh, By the titles, you might be able to guess that these are books that are directly related to the topic at hand. And they just bring this whole world to life in a way that, honestly, I think I was reading a Morgan Llewellyn book, Red Branch, like two or three years ago when I first kind of came to the conclusion of, okay, I I need to get this on a gaming table. So those books, Morgan Llewellyn, I would recommend. Uh, Llewellyn is a bit of a doozy to spell. Aside from that, a great comic book series that's been running since the 80s and is still to this day by the name of Slain by Patrick. Oh, gosh, I forget his last name. Patrick Mills, I believe. Slain is uh, S-L-A-I-N-E, just like a real classic 
kind of sword and sorcery, real brutal Conan the Barbarian sort of just good old fashioned 80s comic book for anybody who's into that sort of thing. They have a lot of really loving references or not so loving references to the original uh, source material, but it's also really uh, taken out there and turned up to 11 in like that classic 80s hair metal fashion. I could keep rattling off influences. Uh, The book will have an inspirational materials section in the back as one of the appendices that'll help any readers that would be curious to kind of track down all of these sources. In that list, I'm even including stuff like Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which was by Disney Film Productions in the 1950s. So we're really trying to cast a wide net there to let people know what's out there. But as far as pop culture that's actually directly related to... uh, Celtic mythology in some way, it's actually a little sparse. You have a lot of references in like general fantasy throughout. You have a lot of aesthetic adaptation of the whole Celtic feel. You know, Celtic knots are very popular, etc. You know, you have little references like the main villain in Hellboy 2, the Golden Army, being uh, named after one of the Aishi. I forget which one he was named after. But, you know, you have stuff like that. But very rarely, to my dismay, have I actually been able to find direct representations of what we're talking about here. But as just one final note, the ultimate recommendation I would have to give to anybody is check out the works by Irish animation studio Cartoon Saloon, especially their trilogy of films, The Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea. And they're just recently released Wolfwalkers, which I think is their crowning achievement, the best one they put out so far. They're all just these amazingly hand-animated stories that are derived through and through from the folklore of Ireland. I believe their studio is based in Kilkenny, and I can't recommend them enough. So So my wife absolutely loves, loves the Secrets of Kells animation. Um, She plays the Pengerbong song like all the freaking (laughs) time. I've heard it so many times. Just like it'll be on repeat as we're going to bed. Like really, Kristen? But yeah, she absolutely loves it. It's a very well done animation. It's actually really well done. But yeah, she absolutely loves, loves that film. Oh yeah. If she's into that one, uh, I would say that you all need to absolutely follow up with Song of the Sea and Wolfwalkers. They're all just absolute 10 out of 10s. I know Wolfwalkers got a few nominations with these past Oscars. I'm not too sure on if they won any, but they deserved to sweep the house as far as I'm concerned. All right. So whenever you consult Irish lore, there are some topics in Irish lore that the modern reader would probably take issue with. Things like, you know, slavery being a thing yes. and human sacrifice being a thing. How do you address those in Heroes of Tara or do you address those in Heroes of Tara. We address them honestly. As much love and affection as I have for the source material, that includes being honest about its wrinkles and blemishes, which, you know, you're going to find in any real world source that is dealing with human beings, especially in pre-modern history. Yes, human sacrifice and slavery would be the two big ones. And they are both given, I hesitate to use the word academic because, I mean, I don't have the credentials to swing around. People might think that me claiming my day job as an archaeologist is credentials enough, and it certainly helps. But I'm, I'm not a professor. I don't publish actual research. So I have to be careful about that and make sure that's very clear every time that I address interpretation of history. But at the same time, I do feel that it is still part of my responsibility to be honest about these things. So the first portion of the book, 
like maybe the first third, a big chunk of it before we even get into the game mechanics, basically is getting into not only the setting itself, you know, there's a big setting gazetteer that kind of lays out the culture and how things work and how your characters might interact with things, you know, to really help players get into the mood for things and get a feel for it, get their feet on the ground. But before then, even like with the preface at the very front, we're having a discussion about the sources and how we interact with and approach and interpret these sources and how they're going to wind up here in the book. And as I'm saying here, that portion makes very clear to the reader that this is history and mythology, which when you mix the two makes both of them far more complex. And then this is only one interpretation of many possible interpretations. And I make it clear to players that they are free to have their own interpretations to bring about a game world as they see fit. That's the big one. If players don't want to have slavery or human sacrifice in their Iru, in their ancient Irish setting, if they're not interested in having it be as exact a simulation as the real history as possible, if they just want to have a fantasy setting like any other fantasy setting, and they don't want to worry about this stuff, that's fine. I make it clear in the book where I lay out the setting as accurately and completely as possible, but it is only to provide the players with the tools to make their own choices about the setting. If they follow everything as I lay it out in the book, yes, it will be a very authentic setting, blemishes and all, but it's very modular as well. They can take out these parts that they don't care for, but to actually interact with the content of the book a bit more itself, I will say that there is a very exhaustive explanation of what what slavery was like at that time, how it worked, what it meant to the people who practiced it, and essentially what it meant for the lives of the people who fell under it. I'm not interested in making any apologies or excuses for ancient Irish people and the practices they made. But what I am interested in doing is showing its complexities, because in pre-modern societies such as this, especially when you have them at a less developed level where they're still on like a clan or tribal system, as opposed to, say, the Roman Empire, which is already kind of working its way into this large scale chattel enterprise. When you go elsewhere to a place like Iru that's more on the fringes and has a lower population, their society is not nearly as productive as, say, the Roman Empire or later Enlightenment-era societies that started the Atlantic slave trade. They are not productive enough to support this kind of extreme inequality that we see in other societies that partook in slavery. In these societies where you have the upper 1% that are absolutely insulated in their ivory towers, and then you have the slave populations way down below. In Irish society, People are still living in, I believe I used the phrase a little bit earlier, reed-thatched mud huts. They're not living in fortresses or castles or anything like that. They're living right on top of one another, very humble. Even the ones who would claim to be kings and chieftains, they don't have thrones. They sit on benches. They break out the jewelry only once in a while, like they're breaking out the good china for a feast. And that's all to say that these people, they lived very close alongside one another even across caste boundaries, and that's including the slaves. So in the book, I detail how a person who was unfortunate enough to find themselves as a slave, and by the way, it was not a discriminatory practice. It was kind of an equal opportunity thing, so to speak. Whether you were a high-born noble or a lowly commoner, you were just as likely to be captured by your neighboring clan conducting a raid one day. Everybody was fair game. And if you found yourself in that situation, it was definitely rough. And I don't make any illusions about that, uh, especially in the book. But what I do outline to players is that it's not the end of the road. 
if they choose to have slavery as a part of their game. Oftentimes with this kind of familiarity between people living so close with one another, after a while, people would come to see their slaves as just a part of the clan. And it was always customary to eventually give these people their freedom, lift them up, maybe adopt them into the clan, and if not, adopt them into the clan, give them the means to restart their life as an independent person. It was in fact considered a tyranny to keep a person as a slave into their old age. So it's obviously not a perfect thing, and I'm not saying that it was, oh, is this in fact a really good thing? You just need to look at it differently. What I'm saying is it's different from the form of slavery that everybody imagines when they make that association. And it is just another part of learning about a different historical society and a different world, honestly, that is perhaps worthwhile to learn about insofar as it did exist. This slavery, it did happen. I'm not just making up the cruelest excesses of slavery possible on some alien planet because it's super cool and edgy. It's a part of the source material for the good or bad. And if somebody wants to interact with it and meditate on what that means and what it meant in our own world, then they're more than welcome to. And if not, if they just want to have a, a beer and pretzel same, then they can just toss that part aside. No big deal. The same goes for human sacrifice. Now, human sacrifice is also a little bit different because with the slavery, it's pretty cut and dry. We know the way that worked. We have a lot of historical precedent. We have models and examples given by similar societies elsewhere in the world at other times in history. And we have archaeological evidence besides. But when it comes to human sacrifice, things are more spotty. As I said earlier, the Romans made a lot of hay about Druids conducting human sacrifice. And I should say we're discussing human sacrifice. There's no question they conducted animal sacrifice. That is very generously attested to in archaeology. And that is a part of the game. If you want to uh, make a ritual casting... You have to make a sacrifice. It could be an inanimate object, but the option is there if you wanted to make it a live animal. But that's neither here nor there, and it's not a big part of the game either. It's just a, another part of the source material as it was. But anyways, carrying on with the matter of specifically human sacrifice, the Romans, they made a big deal out of it. And a lot of modern-day scholars suspect that it might have been motivated by propaganda. You know, Julius Caesar, on his writings in Gaul during his subjugation of the Gaulish tribes in the first century, he personally wrote a lot about Druid sacrifices, and he makes it quite colorful. He spares no details. And anyone who's familiar with that source in an academic sense would know that while valuable in many ways, undoubtedly in a historical context, it also needs to be constantly, thoroughly interrogated for Julius Caesar's personal motivations. He was a politician who was writing this journal not just as an objective history. He was sending these records back to Rome and they were being reported on to the Roman people. So everything he wrote in his writings on the invasions of Gaul was what he wanted the people back in Rome to hear, commoner and senator alike. And so with him having obviously uh, decided to invade Gaul for his personal enrichment and advancement, he needed that reason, that causus belli. And the primary reason was peacekeeping. Sound familiar, anybody? But <laughs> secondary to that was this whole thing of, oh my goodness, look at the Celts. They're so brutal. They're indulging in human sacrifice. They're babies and in incubators, he might as well have said. But we don't know if that is the objective truth. 
And in fact, we have a lot of reason to believe that he did lay it on pretty thick. Now, in Ireland, particularly, we do have at least, I believe, like six to eight, I would round around seven bog bodies that we've discovered. Bog bodies are the preserved mummified remains of human beings who have been deposited in the anaerobic environment of the peat bogs that are a feature of Ireland's landscape. And I believe five out of seven of these bodies do bear forensic evidence of having been part of a ritualistic sacrifice. Uh, Such things as abrasions on their wrists where they would have been bound by rope, very obvious things such as caved-in skull or a slit throat, and then other odd things such as seemingly needless mutilations that could have only been for a ritualistic purpose because it seems that if it was just needless cruelty, then they wouldn't have gone to all the other trouble of like trussing them up and then throwing them in a bog. So there is archaeological evidence as well that the ancient Celts, at least the Irish, did conduct human sacrifice. But then the question is, to what degree? How popular and widespread was it? Was it just like a once in a while thing? Was it an everyday thing? We don't know that. As far as writing testimony goes outside of Roman sources, there is one reference among the monastic clerical writings of medieval Ireland, referring back to these earlier customs and mythologies, that refers to kind of a classic sort of trope where if the harvest is bad, you set the universe back in order by sacrificing your king. That seems to have been a practice that we can verify. So all of these bog bodies, there's also a lot of evidence that they were upper class nobility. They were at times wearing jewelry. Forensic investigation shows that they were all very healthy, well-fed individuals. So evidently they were people of high status. So it seems that whatever human sacrifice was done, it was this very particular specialized, probably only like once in a blue moon sort of thing where it was the upper 1% of the society who was on the chopping block. And I don't mean that in some kind of like revolutionary sense. It seems to be that everybody was on board with the program, so to speak. It might be presumed that even the nobles who were put up to this were, you know, thoroughly ingrained in the worldview of the culture and they believed what was going on. But then that's all a big preamble to talk about how it's done in the game. Again, me pointing out how uncertain we are about human sacrifice is to lead to basically the same point that I gave about slavery, where yes, it was present. Here's what we know about it. And now it is up to you, the players, to decide how much you want to include this in your world. I don't uh, like slavery and human sacrifice are not integral parts of the game mechanics. Like there's no part of like the feely class, the feely class, their subclasses. One of them is the druid. If you choose to not have human sacrifice in here, you're not going to be inhibiting the druid class because I very intentionally made these things modular so that it could be removed and not harm the actual gameplay in any way. Yeah, so I mean, the way you phrase that makes a lot of sense. As Ian said many times, the point of a game is to have fun. Absolutely. Like I said, I don't want this to be a museum. I've got one more question. So if you had to choose a single non-Western culture to give the same treatment as Heroes of Tara, which you alluded to wanting to go to other cultures, if this particular project is successful, what culture would that be? There are a few that I have definitely been daydreaming about, you might say. 
I've been thinking about how cool it would be for there to be a game that was all about the Aztec flower wars with character classes based on the Jaguar warriors and the Eagle warriors. That I was thinking amazing. of how neat it might be to explore pre-feudal, pre-samurai Japan, where they had their own pantheon at work uh, with like Susano, the monster-slaying god of thunder and such. Everybody knows medieval feudal Japan with the samurai and ninja, but it would just be a new thing to go back even further than that because I think that is just as untouched as Irish mythology. I'm sorry, I know you asked if there was only just one culture, but that's that's the trouble about no, this thing, you know? No, that, that's great. Both of those sound really fun. I would love to see a solidly well-researched Mesoamerican game. Yeah. I think that would be a lot of fun. I would say another that I've been thinking about a lot would be a game based just around the Bronze Age Fertile Crescent. The first civilizations on those river valleys around, say, the uh, Bronze Age collapse. So you would have, you know, the whole sphere of Egypt, Sumeria, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Assyria. But that's still kind of a chaotic idea at the time. I recall that there actually was a module to that effect in wanting to say it's either OD&D or second edition. Oh, yeah. I can't for the life of me remember the name of it, but I remember finding it a while back and reading through it. And it was very specifically Bronze Age Mesopotamia. Oh, yeah. Now I'm going to have to go know. find that because that sounds amazing. Yeah. Get like <laughs> Gilgamesh and Enkidu in there. That would just be amazing. I've got one last question before we move on as well. If you could take the Heroes of Tara book once it's out and ready and you could put it in front of any small group or put it in any one person's lap and have them look at it, read it, play, whose hands would you want to get this into? Oh, my goodness. Wow, that's a really good question because there's not really a uh, community that is like kind of ready made for this product to just land amongst them and fit in immediately. And I feel like the only answer that is occurring to me is just like the terribly generic, oh, you know, a group of Irish gamers and see what they think of it. Okay. But beyond that, see what I'm trying to think of and what's holding me up on my answer here is I'm trying to think of if there's like some organization out there of, of old wise storytellers with big bushy beards who can all mull this over and tell me what they think that would be probably the ideal feedback but as it is it's open to anybody and all feedback and i've been i've honestly been over the moon about the reception it's received from all corners thus far awesome all right so one of the things that we like to do whenever we have a guest on is we break out the weird bug generator and we roll some dice and we create a creature on the fly. So if you're up for that. Absolutely. And you've got some dice. Oh, yeah, right here. All right. Well, then let's go ahead and dive right into Yay, it. Yay, clicky math rocks. <laughs> so for starters, give me a D4 roll so we can figure out how this thing moves. All right. We got a three. A three. It burrows. Oh, nice. We got another burrowing one here. All right. So next one is a D6 for what does it eat? All right. Went off the table. There we go. Six. Six. It eats carrion. Oh. Nice. All right. So we got ourselves some grave worms here. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I was thinking doing, I was thinking some sandworms, but yeah. I immediately went All to right. graboid. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Next up is going to be a D8 for the size. Right. Two. Two. Oh, this is great. Grain of sand. So these are going to be tea tiny little things. Whoa. Oh, these are going to be terrifying. I can definitely see these. This is going to be swarm sort of things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we're talking like maggot sized huh. sort of things. Okay. Okay. So next up is going to be a D10 roll for the number of limbs. Ooh. 10. 
Ten. Okay, so it has ten limbs. We've got a decapod. Little crabs. <laughs> yeah, because the limbs don't necessarily have to be legs. Yeah. They can have pincers and stuff up on the front. Maybe some like, almost like a sand lice or a, like I said, a sand crab that eats shore carrion perhaps so far. Okay. And then this one has the potential to be really weird. Give me a D100 roll for the number of eyes. All right. 82. Oh boy. Yeah, this thing's got eyes everywhere. <laughs> I would almost want to do this as sort of like compound eyes. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking too. Like flies have. So rather than having 82 individual eyes, right. we're talking about all of these different facets on a pair of rather large eyes by proportion to its body. Oh, wow. Okay, so next up is going to be a D12 roll for the method of defense. Okay. It's going to be really, really interesting given the size. One. One. Pincers. All right, all right. Yeah, so we're working yeah, with we're, some sand crabs. I like it. Yeah, all right. Next up is going to be a d20 roll for quirks. Ooh. 12. 12. Dodecachromats. This actually works. Mantis shrimp eyes. See ultraviolet and beyond. See magic and invisible stuff. Whoa. I'm liking it. Huh. Which works with our multifaceted eyes. Yeah, absolutely. So it's all coming together really easily this time. So far. Hmm. All right. Next, we're going to make a D100 roll because now it's time to make it weird. Yeah. Nice. All right. Come on, weird. We got 76. 76. Lays its eggs in treasure, which its young eat when they hatch. Okay. So we have two different life cycles here. When it's young, it eats treasure, but then it matures to eating carrion. Or vice versa. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it would have to eat the, no, it would, it would have to eat no, the treasure. Eat, it, yeah, as young. Yeah, the adults eat the carrion. Yeah. So I guess at this point we have to define what is treasure. I mean, are we talking things like gold and gemstones, or are we talking treasure as in I'm thinking like useful goods kind of deal, like a, I would something that you can harvest? I would say, given the whole crab thing and as small as they are, I would say precious and semi-precious metals, so gold, silver, copper, bronze. What if it was specifically a magical treasure, like their little miniature rust monsters or something? Oh, that makes sense, and that's why they'd be able to detect magic and, and everything else. Yeah, that, yeah that's and perfect. It, so basically it feeds off of of the, the magical aura yeah. of mm. these items. Right. Okay, And then because what's the thing that usually has magic items? Adventurers. <laughs> and how is it going to get a hold of this magic item is if the adventurer is dead. So it starts feeding on the item and once it gets big enough, it starts feeding on the adventurer's corpse instead. Oh, these I guys like are it. like, these, these are like lice. These are like just magic yes. lice yes. for your magical loot. <laughs> Yes. You know, you find this magic item, this item that has a magical aura to it in a dungeon on this desiccated corpse. And you're like, oh, do, 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 do. I'm going to take this magic item home with me and then find out that it's <laughs> got all of it. It's infested. Yeah, I love yes. that. Like bed, magical bed bugs. Oh, man. You made oh, man. magical bed bugs. Oh, man. You get yes. home and you put that piece of loot back in your vault with all your other loot. And oh, <laughs> so I'm going to summon Magnus here real quick. <laughs> You're a pirate captain, and you send a chest of this stuff to a rival captain or to a rival pirate. Oh, man. <laughs> and it's oh. like, oh, no, you captured my ship. Whatever will I do? <laughs> I'm holding on to this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, James, do you want to make 
a second D100 roll on this? I do not have my dice on me currently, so I'll let you do it if you got dice next to you. Actually, wait, do I have dice on me? I've got my dice. Yay. Hooray. My dice are never far. I usually do this second roll. Right. Let me. And I figured that you haven't had a turn yet, so I should let you have a turn. Alrighty. 39. 39. Oh, this is cool. Buzzing creates an area of silence other than the buzz as far as the noise carries. Huh. Oh. Interesting. Which makes it interesting for the fact that it feeds off of magical auras. Because I can almost see, you know, the swarm of these things starts buzzing and that basically nullifies the magic on the item, allowing them to feed on it. Right. No, here's where it's insidious. Oh, go ahead. Wait, go ahead, please. Well, I was saying it creates an aura of silence, right? Because I could just imagine, like, you call the D&D Orkin man, you call the exterminator, and he is a level three wizard that's going to just use a fire spell and clear these guys out. That's exactly where I was going to go, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, how do you deal with swarm creatures? You you drop an area of, ex- of effect spell, right? Yeah. <laughs> but silence negates any verbal components. Yep. So your wizard exterminators can't just say the magic word and clear them out. <laughs> Now, that's whenever you have to get the sorcerer exterminator specialist in who has silent spell, metamagic. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what are we going to call these things? Loot lice. Okay, I like it. What were they? It's, I missed that. Loot lice. Okay, yeah, that's a solid name. Yeah, uninspired, but it gets the point across. <laughs> yeah, no, I, think, I like it. I think that's going to be more of the colloquial name. Right. It's what adventurers call them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they probably have this nice big scientific name, but everyone just calls them loot lice. No, I like loot lice. That has a good feel to it. That has a good monster manual. Like you'd flip through, okay, well, oh, here's the loot lice stats. I, I like it a lot. Yeah. And I don't know, I could just imagine that they were like some kind of like a magical offshoot of actual rust monsters. Like they have some kind of relation to those. They're just little tiny ones. Maybe know. they're carried with rust methods. Hmm, maybe. Oh, yeah. Something Especially like with the whole trickster nature of the method. If they burrow, they would definitely be probably native to like the plane of Earth, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. So dust methods, mud methods, something like that. Yeah, I could see that. Hmm. All right, so just a quick recap on our loot lice. So they burrow, they eat carrion, they are T-tiny, have 10 limbs and 82 eyes, which we have decided are going to be just two multifaceted eyes. Their defense mechanism is pincers. They have mantis shrimp eyes, which allows them to see ultraviolet and also basically see invisibility and magical auras. They lay their eggs in treasure and their larvae eat treasure. And their buzzing creates an aura of silence. It's an anti-cicada. <laughs> well, and it does specify silence other than the buzz. Oh, okay. So the buzz still happens, but it drowns out all other... It's basically a white noise machine. Yeah. Huh. I like it. You can just feed it a copper every night so you can get some rest. Yeah. Just drop, drop <laughs> a little coin in there to activate it. <laughs> yeah, you just have your wizard cast Nistel's Magic Aura on a copper piece, and then you flick it in, and they just beat on it. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I love it. All right. Well, I think that comes out pretty good. So, uh, Jake... Before we get going, how about you tell us where to find you, where to find your project. Heroes of Tara, if I recall correctly, is coming out tomorrow, July 1st. So give us some contact info so we can look you up. Yeah, so obviously we will have the Kickstarter page itself up and ready to go. We also have a Discord community 
that I intend to keep open and active for as long as possible in the foreseeable future. At this Discord community, we just talk about anything related to the game, gaming in general, mythology and history. And we also run as often as possible every week, just open to the public demo sessions of Heroes of Tara itself. We're also looking into uh, getting some virtual tabletop options set up for that. So if we can get the Discord link in the uh, description below all this uh, episode here, then anybody who would care to navigate through there would be more than welcome to join us. We're also on Twitter. You could just find us at Heroes of Tara. And thank you for your support and interest. And thank you to you guys for having me on here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. And then one last thing, another thing that we like to ask our guests is, is there someone in the community that you would really like to give a shout out for a streamer, a content creator, an yes. artist that you would like to shout out for our listeners to check out. Yeah, I would definitely like to shout out my fellow creator by the name of Nathan Cavalier, who has created a uh, story game by the name of Domains of Shadow. It is a story game based entirely on gothic horror and Shakespearean tragedy. It is a DMless game where there is no referee or mediator. Everybody is a player and you have a very light touch of a currency system where you are able to buy in as the narrative progresses along and you get to introduce your own narrative twists and everybody usually plays at least two different characters as they go on and off stage. All the world's a stage and we are merely throwing dice. Exactly. Yeah, it's primarily uh, designed to be uh, for podcasting. If anybody wanted to use this system to play out an ad-libbed radio drama, Domains of Shadow would be the one to do it. So Domains of Shadow has its own Discord where you can find them. Nathan Cavalier is also a fairly frequent flyer on our Discord. He's been very supportive with our work as well. So I would just love to everybody give his work a look. All right. And we will definitely try and get his information in the show notes, as well as the link to the Discord and to the uh, Kickstarter landing page. Absolutely. So where can we find you specifically if people wanted to reach out to you? Well, I am also on Twitter, just at Jacob Dirksen, but I can also be reached through Gmail at my email address, Heroes of Tara. That's just Heroes of Tara at gmail.com. All right. Well, Jake, thank you very much for coming on for this episode of Under Common Taste. We've really appreciated your input today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Ian, James, thank you both so much. Yes, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening to us today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and Insult page-a-day calendar-inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They get posted to the Twitter account and then cross-posted to our Instagram and Facebook accounts at Undercommon Taste. We also have a Patreon account, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. So if you wanted to help us support the show financially, you can do that there. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify pretty much wherever you're finding podcasts now. As always, give us a rate and a review. This helps increase our visibility so we can bring you more content. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media, 
We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.